Support for Human Nature comes from Mont Iboka and Chef Corso. Elevate your meals on your next outdoor trip with over 100 easy, fast, trail-tested recipes, plus meal plans and how-to videos. Find them at montiboka.com. That's M-O-N-T-Y-B-O-C-A dot com. montiboka.com. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. If you're in the U.S., you're probably hearing this around Thanksgiving. And if one of the things you're thankful for is human nature, you can show your gratitude with a donation. Everyone who gives gets a sticker. If you can give a bit more, we have t-shirts too. And regardless, we're thankful to have you as a listener. For this episode, we're reaching into our back catalog. Caroline Ballard brings us the story. We'll hear about a woman who's always stood up for what she believed was right. Until one day, she learned that sometimes it's better to run away. And I just booked it, turned around, and I've never run so fast in my life. Aubrey Bertram grew up in the Mountain West, where she fell in love with animals. I knew that I wanted to do a lot of service work. I've always been an animal person. You know, growing up in the West, you see a lot of stuff. I'm from Colorado originally. I lived in Montana and lived in Wyoming. And, you know, you see a lot of critters out there. And so I, I knew I wanted to work with animals, do something in wildlife husbandry, conservation, something like that. And I knew that I really wanted to travel a lot more and that the time to do it is when you're young and you don't have a mortgage and you don't have kids and you know you don't have those things to kind of tie you down to one place. I mean, I literally was just googling how to go to Thailand. For the first leg of her trip, Aubrey actually ended up in Cambodia. She spent a month working for Free the Bears, an organization based in a rural area outside of the capital city. Phnom Penh. It was, gosh, it was awesome. They have the largest population of captive Malayan sun bears and Asiatic black bears, which, you know, on the one hand sounds really cool, like the largest population of anything sounds cool, but, you know, they shouldn't be in captivity in the first place. And these bears are all there as a result of poaching, as a result of bear bile trade, as a result of bear paw stew, which is just awful. In some countries, Bear bile is marketed as a cure-all natural medicine. There's little proof that the bile has any effect, but the promise of profit has created farms where bile is harvested from captured bears in inhumane ways. But it was, I mean, it was such a great experience to help care for these animals and to work really closely with a lot of local people in a really very, very rural setting. Like, I was the only white person for like two hours. Aubrey's next stop was Thailand. She spent the next six weeks working with an organization that rescued animals from black market trading. All kinds of critters. Loris, langurs, macaques, gibbons. There was a tiger. I'm not sure if she is still alive. And then at the time that I was there, there were seven elephants. What was your job? job makes it sound really glamorous. I was a volunteer. Um, and I worked primarily with the elephants. 
So, you know, on a daily basis, we would get up at six-ish and feed the elephants, clean their stalls, make sure they had fresh water. Cleaning their stalls is a euphemism for like picking up their poop and putting it in a wheelbarrow. Uh, it was it was really glamorous. You know, so we'd get up early, do that, collect their food. So elephants are huge animals and they eat a lot of food. And we had a pretty cool system worked out with some of the local banana plantation owners. It was a very rural part of Thailand. So you had these huge swaths of land that were banana plantations and bananas, the fruit actually only grow on new stocks. So you have to cut down the old stocks once they've bared fruit. So we would go in and like clean out these farmers fields of banana trees, like these big, huge trees, clear them out and then take them back and feed those to the elephants. So that was, that was really cool. So we would do that all day from like 6 a.m. until you know, five or six at night, um, various shifts of cleaning and feeding, enrichment, bath time. Elephants have really sensitive skin and you have to have to keep it clean. As she worked with the elephants, Aubrey also learned their history. In order to get a several ton animal who could crush a person with like, you know, no struggle whatsoever, in order to get them to be controlled by people, People put them through this this process called crushing, and it's literally crushing the elephant's spirit to the point where they are so emotionally and physically abused that they basically live in fear of their handler and will do whatever their handler says based out of fear. It's really, really horrific. It's torture. I mean, it's absolute torture. And so for animals, for elephants in particular, who either were, at one point, they were all stolen from the wild and their spirits had to be broken in the 60s and 70s, for example, to be able to do logging work. You know, we're talking about really, really dense tropical areas that it's hard to get big pieces of machinery back there and those big pieces of machinery are also really expensive to import and really expensive to maintain. And these elephants would be used to knock down trees and then they would have like basically chains, I guess, that they would then rope around the elephant, drag the logs behind them out of the forest. And then in the 1980s, Thailand outlawed commercial logging. And so all of these elephants who for you know, as long as they'd been alive, had been in this logging industry, which also involved crushing their spirit because they needed to be controlled by their handlers. There was this basically excess of elephants that people still wanted to exploit, and they realized that Western tourists would pay a lot of money to take pictures with elephants, to ride an elephant, you know, to see an elephant do a dance on the street. Like, people will pay money for that. I think it's a really easy thought to go, oh, well, elephants are so big, like how can, how can a 150, 200 pound person really be damaging? You know, but you have that, that psychological element of allowing someone to sit on top of you. And in a lot of areas, there's this like metal, big metal seat that sits, you know, kind of in the middle of the elephant's back. And those seats themselves are really, really heavy. And then when you get 
four, five, six people up there, that's a ton of weight that's sitting on like the most delicate part of an elephant's spine. And so it can cause really serious deformations. It's not as if elephants are, are just these like big animals that can take anything. They're very delicate and they're very thoughtful. And their, their bodies, their, their physical bodies, yes, they're incredibly powerful, but they have really sensitive skin and they have these really sensitive spines that are not, they're not at all evolved or developed for people. They're developed for the elephant. Coming up, Aubrey understood all this on an intellectual level, but a week into her job, she felt that pain in person. Support for Human Nature comes from Mont Iboka and Chef Corso, helping to elevate your meals on your next outdoor trip. All recipes are 10 ingredients or less, ready in 30 minutes or less, require no pre-prep or dehydrating, have low pack weight, and use fresh, easy-to-find ingredients. Recipes are now available in a new pocket-sized cookbook. $2 from every sale goes to help protecting public lands and community projects. Use the promo code BOCA10 at montiboka.com. That's M-O-N-T-Y-B-O-C-A dot com. montiboka.com. The girls and the, there was one male elephant that I was working with, they had all in one way or another been a part of these processes. They'd either been former logging elephants who, when they quote unquote lost their job in, in 1988, were then transitioned into um, these other forms of exploitation or were stolen from the wild, basically, in the 1980s and had been brought up in these systems of subjugation and oppression of performance and tourist work and, and that kind of stuff. So they, they all had a lot of really deep emotional scars, just like we see in people who have experienced really severe physical and emotional abuse and trauma, a lot of the same, a lot of the same scars. So I was still pretty new, didn't know the elephants super well at this point. And there was one who, her name was Palin, and she was a former performing elephant. And she had given a lot of rides. That was kind of her background story, was that she worked at a tourist camp in, I think, Phuket, giving rides to people. And so her spine was really, really deformed, and I bet she was in a lot of physical pain all the time from that spinal deformation and you know and that that like excess weight on her back it really impacts their their shoulders their knees their hips and she had been really horribly abused you know like i said you got to you got to crush their spirit and it's an ongoing process to keep that spirit crushed and so she had experienced that every day since she was a baby until she was rescued I was in her pen. She had a pretty large open air enclosure. And I was I was trying to be very like cautious and respectful of her space. You know, you don't wanna you don't wanna get like too close, but basically she was on one end of this really large pen and she was like in some foraging area and was rooting around and like doing her elephant thing, I guess. And I was on the other side of the pen basically just like chucking fruit around as a means of enrichment for her to continue to like search around and find to forage. And out like out of nowhere, she 
came bolting from this one side way over to my side, running full force, full speed right at me. And I was terrified to see this huge multi-ton animal running at a really fast speed directly towards me. She was angry. She was very, very angry. I had heard that you don't want to let the animals know that you're afraid. So Palin's running at me. I'm just like completely frozen out of fear and also out of this mental state that's like, ooh, don't let her know that you're afraid because then she wins or, you know, whatever. So she gets maybe a foot from me and stops. So she's 12 inches away from me and she stopped her full speed run. And I had this big basket of fruit in my hand and she takes her trunk and like rips it out of my hands and starts eating the fruit all the while like staring right at me and I was maintaining eye contact with her. And I just thought like, oh shoot, what, what do I do? And so I just stood there, you know, kind of like when you're a little kid and you're trying to act like an adult and you like stand up really, really strong, like puff out your chest, I guess. I kind of felt like that. Like I was trying to put on this show of like, no, I'm huge, I'm big, I'm scary. But on the inside, I was just like, I could die in the next 30 seconds. So what am I gonna think about for the next 30 seconds of my life? It was probably about a minute. I, you know, kind of looked over my shoulder and I was about 10, 20 feet away from the fence and it was an electric fence, an electrified fence. And I thought, all right, well, I'm just gonna have to make a run for it. I, you know, continued to make eye contact with her and at one point she glanced down at the ground, I guess to see how much food she had left and she didn't have a lot. So she glanced down and I just booked it, turned around and I've never run so fast in my life. And just booked it to this fence. And she's running after me, like she was maybe a step behind me, made it to the fence and like rolled under brushed the electric wire and got this really awful shock. She was right behind me, and if I had been one second slower, she would have stepped on me and she would have killed me. You know, first of all, it was totally terrifying. But once I was on the other side of the fence and once I was in, like, my element of safety and she had her space back, it just really made me painfully aware that I had put her in a situation where she felt unsafe and where she felt like she needed to, to defend herself. And my response to her defending herself was this other act of aggression, was this like defiantly standing my ground. You know, when we think about individuals with mental health crises, um, maybe who have post-traumatic stress disorder, when they're, you know, having a crisis and they're in this somewhat aggressive or agitated state, we don't think to respond in aggression. And I felt like that's what I did by standing there, like defiantly staring at her. And it just, it just made me feel very, very humbled about what my place is, kind of in the grander scheme of things and how deeply these scars of emotional and physical abuse are felt by everyone. I think in the moment I did the best that I could and the best that I knew how. 
After that day, the volunteers gave the elephants their space. Collectively, there was a lot less interaction. If they were on one side of their enclosure, we didn't go in anymore. We would just chuck stuff over the fence. And if we needed to, like, clean out the poop, there were ways where we could, like, create another enclosure. Um, so, like, section it off to be able to clean it out in sections and kind of move her around. Did this change at all how you sort of view things, like maybe the line between tame and wild? Yeah, it did. I didn't go to Cambodia or Thailand, you know, with with the intent or with any expectation of like, oh, it's it's going to be magical and we're going to, you know, get such a great selfie from my Facebook profile. But I guess just having such such an intimate personal relationship, it just made me so like deeply aware of the very full emotional lives that all animals have. It just it really made me think very differently about how I carry myself with all types of animals. And, you know, this would be a consideration is that you are infringing on their space. And that for wild animals particularly, you know, depending on the area, there's probably a lot of encroachment and a lot of these like microaggressions on their space that they experience from people all the time. And just to be like keenly aware that they've had these other experiences, that you are not a one-off chance that all of these all of these experiences create like an emotional memory i'm assuming that this abuse came from a situation where they were not allowed to be in the wild were not allowed to be with their families not allowed to forage and eat the full rich diverse diet that a forest would provide for them i think they need space to be an elephant and they need they need to have the opportunity to learn how to be themselves and the ability to have those experiences i i'm guessing would would help to kind of give them that that sovereignty like over themselves back that kind of self-determination of like i am an elephant and this is what elephants do and i'm going to do it without these people Our storyteller was Aubrey Bertram. She's back in the U.S. these days, and she works as a pro bono lawyer, representing Native Americans in Montana. And while she learned on her trip that some wild things need to stay wild, there were two stray dogs at the rescue that didn't fit in with the other packs. The pups are now very happy to call Montana home. That's Caroline Ballard, and I'm Erin Jones. The story was produced by Alana Elder, August Law, and Annie Osborne. Anna Rader is our digital producer, and our executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.